You're listening to On the Road, Our Way, the archive of the podcast formerly known as Women on the Road from 2017 to 2020, hosted and produced by Laura Borshevsky and a production of Rabble Media. This episode of Women on the Road is brought to you by Deuter. You might know Deuter for the technical hiking, backpacking, snow sport, bike, and travel packs they've been making German-engineered since 1898 for comfort, fit, and ventilation. But they also have a long-standing commitment to craft their durable packs with sustainability in mind, because they see looking after the environment as their responsibility as an outdoor and travel gear company. We'll get to learn more about Deuter's commitment to environmental sustainability initiatives later in the episode, so stay tuned. We'll talk with Rebecca, a member of the Deuter team, about Deuter's history of designing sustainable gear for the long haul. Find the perfect bag for your next adventure at REI or your local outdoor retail shop. So our country is asking us, don't travel, don't move. And for travelers and adventurers, like the people who listen to this podcast, that is a really hard message for us to hear. If this works, if we all get really aggressive about this right now, it's going to look like we overreacted and we're going to be like, oh, there weren't that many cases and not that many people died. And then like, then that means it worked. So we're going to have to be willing to look like we overreacted. Instead of saying, should I go to this city versus this rural area, it's really saying, what is my risk to contracting this? And what is my risk to others if I were to spread this? I'm Laura Borshevsky, and you're listening to Women on the Road, a podcast to bring you closer to some of the honest experiences that life on the road has to offer from the perspective of women who've lived them firsthand. As we all know, the past couple of weeks have come with a lot of emotion, confusion, and isolation due to the novel coronavirus, or what most folks are now referring to as COVID-19. And in light of what we are now in the midst of, a global pandemic impacting nearly every corner of the world, we ourselves as travelers have had a lot of questions about how to continue on safely during these times, and in an informed way that limits our impacts on the communities we pass through. The reality is that your travels do make an impact on this world event and taking the time to hear from experts, understand the facts we have currently, and make decisions at this point, it's really important. So we're breaking from our normal air date of Friday to release this episode today, Tuesday, March 17th, because we felt this information just couldn't wait. In crafting this episode, we also want to recognize that pandemics take a long time to truly dissipate. Things feel very heightened right now when it comes to cancellations and travel restrictions, but we could see a time in the future where travel feels safe again, even though COVID-19 exists in our community still. The reality is, we don't really know. So if you're listening to this episode, I encourage you to do so with not only the next handful of weeks in mind, but with a long-term mindset of what it means to be a responsible traveler and containing the spread of harmful disease, even if you yourself don't feel personally impacted. It also feels important to add before we get too far into things that we've tailored a lot of this conversation to be directed towards those living in the United States. But that said, there's a lot to be learned from what's going on here that could be applied to other places in the world. We're honored to have two incredible professionals joining us on the show who not only have experience on the road, but also firsthand know-how when it comes to this outbreak. The first is Emily Scott, a registered nurse based in Seattle, who's currently working in the epicenter of the U.S. coronavirus outbreak. Joining us also is Kate Pfeiffer, an emergency planner in public health, meaning that she and her team are responsible for creating and maintaining emergency response plans for outbreaks like COVID-19, and also exercising and drilling those plans. Because information on COVID-19 has been evolving so quickly, 
It's important to note that these interviews were recorded two nights ago, on Sunday, March 15th. Since then, we've seen some increased restrictions on travel, both abroad and in some large cities, as authorities on all levels make efforts to keep folks from traveling unnecessarily. This conversation you'll hear makes reference to non-essential travel a few times, and I think the key right now is to understand that the meaning of that phrase is evolving. It might have meant a vacation a few days ago. Perhaps where we are right now, it could mean a wedding you were planning on going to or a non-urgent eye doctor visit. Just something to be aware of as you tune in and know that staying up to date on how things evolve is a personal responsibility. Personally, I had a lot of questions on my mind for these two, but posed it to you listeners as well in our podcast Facebook group, and you had some really important topics to bring up with both Emily and Kate, which we incorporated into this episode. Thanks so much to everyone who joined in that discussion and helped to recommend folks we should reach out to for an interview. Without you all, this episode might not have happened in such a timely manner. In fact, I can guarantee it wouldn't have. Thanks again. So, first things first. The big question that seems to be circling the internet right now. Cancel everything is a movement that's trending. So I asked Emily, should we just be staying at home right now? Honestly, yeah. And I will say two weeks ago or end of February when I was like first looking into all this, I would not have said that at all. I was still thinking like, oh, if they close schools, you know, my husband's a teacher. I'm like, oh, well, we'll take a trip if they close schools. And now I'm like, everybody just stay put. Just stay. (laughs) Just don't risk it. This isn't the first time we've seen this situation with COVID-19 evolve rapidly. In fact, if you follow the news, it can feel like every day folks are being told something new, especially if you're a traveler or tourist right now. Kate jumps in to provide some context on why this is. This is so new. And so this being the first time that it's ever been seen in humans, there's still so much that while we're getting ready for this pandemic to affect the United States, and at the end of the day, the greatest consequence is that people will die from this. At the same time, we don't have the research to tell us what this virus is capable of, and we just don't know fully everything about it. Yeah, how long will it stay on the surface? How will it affect people or infect them? And to complicate matters, we don't really know how many people have it, especially in the U.S. Why is that, and how does it impact our travel decisions? This is something Emily's been talking about daily in recent weeks, so I asked her to share her thoughts. Well, unfortunately, in the U.S. right now, we are not testing widely for this. There's a lot of reasons for that, but it's been many missteps in our government that we're not testing. So there's really no way to know where this virus is or how many people have it anywhere in the United States. Or, you know, so it's not like you can look at a list of which states have a lot of cases and say, oh, I think I won't go to Washington, but maybe I'll go to, I don't know, Alabama. I don't know if Alabama has any cases, but... We're not testing widely for it, so it's probably quite widespread all over the United States. There's nowhere you can go that you're like, oh, this is a place that isn't going to have any, and I definitely won't spread it, or I definitely won't catch it. There's no way to know. So clearly, there are a lot of unknowns with COVID-19. And amidst all the updates and memes and quick headlines, there's a good deal of misinformation, too. Because Kate is actively involved in managing public health on a larger scale, I asked her if there were any common misconceptions she's noticed regarding COVID-19. She's identified a few. A couple of things that I've noticed are those common misunderstandings include that masks and the use of masks. There's a lot of stigma based around this, based on ethnicity, and a lot of comparison to the flu. So think about first with the flu, we've been tracking coronavirus for about two and a half months. So when it was just really starting to emerge, In China, we were taking a look 
as a public health organization at what was going on there and trying to start those non-pharmaceutical interventions or those preventative measures here in the United States. And that really started with, hey, we're in a really high flu season, which we are. And the best way to prevent flu is, again, you know, wash your hands, cover your cough, stay home if you're sick. What then happened is a confusion between the flu being the same as coronavirus. There are two different categories. Coronavirus is a respiratory virus, and its main symptoms that we're focusing on are fever, a dry cough, and shortness of breath. And so when you have those symptoms, you might have others with it, and those aren't necessarily the same as the flu. So people who have the flu were getting a little confused of saying, oh, I might have coronavirus, but they are different. And it wasn't meant to undermine the severity of coronavirus. It was just an educational tool to say, hey, we are faced with many viruses and bacteria. We need to continue basic hygiene practices and basic preventative measures so that we don't contract this illness and we don't spread that to other people. Another misunderstanding has been around masks. And an issue that the healthcare systems are facing is there's a huge shortage in personal protective equipment, things like masks and gloves that help our healthcare professionals, our nurses, our doctors who are coming in contact with sick people. And so it is not recommended at all that people who are healthy should be wearing masks. If anything, you tend to touch your face more when you're trying to put on a mask, but also the hoarding of these personal protective supplies is really hindering the response by our healthcare professionals. And another huge misunderstanding is that people thought that it was only in persons of Asian descent. And that created a lot of prejudice and racism against that population. And really this virus can affect anyone. It can affect children to adults and anyone in between. And the importance of understanding how this virus is spread and that not only are we at risk, of getting this virus, but we also have a responsibility to our neighbors and to our family and to even strangers that we don't know that we don't continue to push this virus along. Another common misconception is something Emily, as a nurse, is super passionate about. It's about face masks. I asked her if they were helpful or not to prevent contracting the virus. So they're not helpful, and I will beg and plead as a nurse right now for people not to buy masks and gloves and because we need them. Like, we don't have enough at the hospital right now, and we are the ones that are, like, caring for these patients close up. Like, I can't do social distancing from a patient that has COVID-19 because we have to care for them. So I can't stand six feet away from a patient, you know? Um, so we need those supplies, and if we don't have them and all the nurses and doctors get sick, then I don't know what, who they're going to get care from. <laughs> On top of which, unless you have a certain type of mask or you're trained to use your mask appropriately, they really don't do you any good. So like, if you imagine that you're wearing the mask because you think someone's going to cough on your face and you'll get virus all over the mask, your eyes are still open, so it's still getting your eyes, and it's also then, I guess, all over the mask. So if you're wearing that mask all day and touching it and like pulling it up and down to take it off, then the virus is all over your fingers. So like in the hospital, they're like supposed to be single use. Like you take it off when you're not around the patient anymore and you discard it because it's contaminated. So, you know, unless <laughs> you have this giant stockpile of masks, which if you do, I would really like it if you could bring them to the hospital. Um, they're really not doing you any good. And same, you know, same with gloves. 
So how do you best prevent contracting COVID-19? I'm sure you've heard this by now, but washing your hands is the most important thing you can regularly do with soap and water for at least 20 seconds. Emily and Kate both had good thoughts on this as it relates to road travel, including places you'll want to be extra cautious of when you're out on the road. And every day, even when we're not having an outbreak of anything, the best thing you can do to keep yourself from catching anything is washing your hands. So the idea is that your hands are touching all kinds of dirty things all day, and before you touch your face, like the entry point for this virus is mucous membranes, eyes, nose, mouth. So before you're like, reach up to like, you know, rub your eyes or pick up food and put it in your mouth or blow your nose or whatever, like wash your hands. If you, you know, before, after you've touched anything else, really, especially like common spaces like door handles or, you know, the sink knobs or anything like that. I mean, like gas, <laughs> gas handles at the gas station. Um, this would be a big thing for your listeners, for sure. Um, so you're just trying to break that train of, chain of transmission. So anytime you feel like your hands have touched something that is, you know, public, wash them <laughs> before you touch your face. I always think about if my hand had wet paint on it and I just started touching everything in my house or in my van, from the wheel to the sink to the doorknobs, if I go to a gas station and I go for the pump at the gas station, the handle, you know, where my paint would go and then where that paint would end up on someone else's hand. So besides general hand washing, in your van or at home, wherever you are, you can also just do very basic cleaning. So disinfect surfaces. So if you have even just a little kitchenette or kitchen, disinfect the wheel, disinfect areas that you've been touching a lot. Because if you did bring in germs from, say, the gas pump into your car, those germs are going to stay on those surfaces. So you want to make sure that you're practicing general disinfectant in your car, in your van, in your home, wherever that might be. So that general cleaning can help keep your surfaces as clean as possible. Okay, so hand washing, check. But there are other considerations to make when it comes to a pandemic, like making sure you have enough food and other goods on hand. But how much is too much? We've heard reports of people buying hordes of bottled water, dozens of gallons of milk, and clearing the shelves of common bathroom essentials in local grocery stores. So what do you need to stock up on, really? I think they can leave the toilet paper in the store. I think what you want to prepare for is the same way as if you got a terrible flu or a cold, because 80% of the cases of COVID-19 are mild. So if you get this and you're isolated at home, and like I said, 80% of the time, it's not going to be that bad. So you want like Tylenol for a fever and your favorite cough medicine and tissue and lots of water. And depending on where you live, it's very different for different people in different situations, depending on how you're living and where you're living. If you truly don't have anyone who could bring you food and just drop it off at your doorstep while you were isolated for a couple of weeks, then sure, stock up on food. But I think other than that, I don't think there's any reason to like have a month's worth of food. You know, I mean, I, I like I live in Seattle and even though we're obviously you know, on lockdown, like you can still go to the grocery store or if I got sick, I could have a friend drop food off. And I, I would hate to see, my husband just went to the store and like the entire frozen food section is empty. I'm like, people are going to need food, so leave some for your neighbors, please. Emily's practical advice is useful to road travelers especially, as buying in bulk can be complicated by the fact that those who live on the road are more likely to have limited space anyway. 
Kate had some thoughts specific to road travelers too. Whether you're on a short-term road trip, find yourself in a car because of this pandemic, or live on the road full-time by choice. So especially for travelers on the road, you should have very basic emergency gear with you. So in general, not just for coronavirus, you should have extra jugs of water. You should have some extra food and cooking equipment that can stand on its own and not require electricity. You also want to have really basic, like a handheld radio. You want to have flashlights, some sanitizer and wipes. You do want to have the basics, especially if you're out on the road and you don't have access to running water to wash your hands, and especially you don't want to leave soap in our natural parks, you know. So making sure that you have those basics in place. When you're on the road, especially during flu season, during this kind of virus, you want to make sure that you're stocked up on basic over-the-counter medicines like Tylenol, Advil, cold medicine, cough drops, whatever that might be so that you don't have to keep making those runs and you have those on hand. And it sounds so basic, but making sure that if you're on the road and you're gonna be somewhere that is off the grid and you need to, you know, you're not gonna have cell service, you wanna make sure that people, one, know where you are, and two, it's important that you get the numbers of the local health department or of the local hospital or clinic because if something happens, you want to know how to get there, how to navigate there, even for any other kinds of injuries or for any kind of sickness that would require immediate medical attention. So having that emergency plan for if this situation goes south, what am I going to do from here is really important when you're on the road. Estimates are changing all the time, but needless to say, there's a good chance that a lot of adults over 20 will contract COVID-19. And if you do get it, and you're young and in relatively good health, odds are also estimated that your symptoms are going to be mild, which you'll hear more from Emily on in a minute. But what do you do if you're living on the road and get sick? Emily gives some advice on how to identify the virus and what steps to take if you think you have it. It's a sticky situation if you are not set up to be, like, totally self-sufficient. Like, I'm just thinking you could, in, if you had a mild illness, like, go out, I guess, and, like, if you're not having any contact with anyone and just, like, get over it. If it's truly mild and you don't have to get to a hospital and you obviously have the ability to get there if you need to but yeah if you get sick right now this is not a time to be brushing off mild symptoms they know the symptoms we're looking for are a cough a fever which is a temperature of 100.4 or more and or shortness of breath and i encourage people to not be like oh i don't have a fever and a cough so i'm probably fine like if you're coughing isolate yourself because we don't have any way of knowing right now if you have a cold or the flu or COVID-19. And like I said, we're only at this point at the time we're recording. We're really only testing the sickest people. So you're not going to be able to walk up to your doctor's office and get a test. Because we're really kind of triaging who we can test because we don't have enough capacity to test, unfortunately, right now. So what you should do if you get sick, if you get sick at all. Call your doctor's office. Call your doctor's office. Do not go into an ER unless you are truly having a health emergency. Do not go to your doctor's office unless you truly, like, need to. They'll run you through, like, if you really need to go to a hospital or if you really need to be tested for this. And most likely what they're going to tell you to do is isolate yourself until all of your symptoms go away for 72 hours. Because, like I said, you know, you may not know what this is, so just isolate yourself. 
and we're just trying not to put any extra stress on the medical system at all right now. So like I said, don't go to the ER unless you really need to for your safety because they'll probably pick something up and for other people's safety because you might give them whatever you have and for the sake of the nurses and doctors that are already like so swamped. And then, you know, if you are sick and you're living on the road, it's a good thing right now to start thinking about what you would do because you really need to, at that point, protect others from you. So if you're coughing and you have a fever, I do not want you walking into public bathrooms or taking public showers at the gym or walking into a restaurant to get takeout. So you're gonna need to make a plan for how you like truly can isolate yourself. Do you have a friend's house you can stay and they can stay somewhere else? This is definitely the time to like think about it, pick a place, stick to that place. This is not the time to be like taking a road trip cross country. <laughs> like pick a place that has all the support that you need and stay there. If you do get sick, while on the road or otherwise, you'll put yourself into isolation, which is different from quarantine or self-quarantine. Both of these are different from social distancing, too, a term that's been trending online these days due to the outbreak. It's been tough to untangle the difference between the three, so we asked Kate to shine a light on them for us. Those terms are being thrown out a lot, so we hear a lot of social distance, quarantine, isolation. And these are specific terms that we use in public health to differentiate when we're talking about uh, specific persons and what is required of them. So isolation is when you're separating sick people with a contagious disease, or in this case with a virus, from people who are not sick. So these individuals have symptoms. We know that they have this virus and we need to separate them so that they don't spread it to other people. Quarantine, on the other hand, separates and restricts the movement of people who are healthy but have been exposed to the virus in some way. What you're seeing with self-quarantine right now is travelers typically coming from areas of high elevated risk, uh, like China, Iran, and now adding a lot of European countries. These travelers are coming back and being asked to self-quarantine for 14 days. And in that quarantine, they are not going out in public, they're staying at home, they are monitoring their temperature, and taking a look at their symptoms. And if they do become symptomatic, then they're presenting um, over the phone to the local health department or to their local health care, their primary care doctor. The, the piece that the majority of us Americans are being asked to do right now is the social distancing. Uh, you know, this is a, a term that we've used in public health, so it's not some new term that's all of a sudden just being coined at this time. Social distancing in this effect is meaning that we're asked to physically put space between us so that we have a less chance of spreading the virus to each other. And in social distancing, that goes as far as what we're seeing in many of our states and in the country right now, where you put in what we call non-pharmaceutical interventions or those preventative measures so that this virus won't spread. And that's everything from canceling large events, making sure that you're really washing your hands that you're covering your cough and you're practicing those basic hygiene essentials that we're always asked to do, but being much more aware of them. And so that social distancing is also asking us, hey, we don't want you in a crowded area where then you can spread this to another person or multiple people, and then that continues to spread. And so what a lot of our states and a lot of the country is asking is for people to find themselves where they're staying away from those crowds, but you, it doesn't mean that you stop interacting with people. And it means that we can continue our lives, but in a way that is not 
putting ourselves at risk or putting other people at risk of contracting this virus. Sit tight. We'll be back with more from Emily and Kate after this. Deuter has been making technical hiking, backpacking, snow sport, bike, and travel packs German-engineered since 1898 for comfort, fit, and ventilation. When we think of going the extra mile, it's not just the distance we travel. It's also the energy we put behind making change happen. This is why Deuter's effort to design backpacks that function with sustainability at the forefront of their mission resonates with us. It's the extra energy that gets us further down the road and enjoying a healthier planet. Rebecca joins us now to give us an inside look at Deuter and their durable packs. My name is Rebecca and I do all of our trade, event, retail, marketing, and uh, I've also taken on a lot of our corporate responsibility communication. We like to say that responsibility and sustainability have always been a part of what we do because in order for that gear to A, be sold or B, be used or C, be loved, we have to have these places and uh, make sure that they're in the best shape that we can. So we do our best to have fun with it, but also take it super seriously to make sure that these values are um, incorporated into our daily lives and operations, whether that's design and developing uh, really durable products so that they last and they don't end up in our landfills uh, or backing them up by a lifetime warranty that we call the Deuter Promise and doing our best if something does happen to repair them first and replace them if we have to. So I actually reached out to the German team as well because I wanted to see what the old pack that they had gotten was. Seems like we were both tied with packs from the 1980s pre-Berlin Wall falling. But it was a super cool retro-looking backpack with a retro logo that said Deuter and a really clean font that said West Germany. Find the perfect bag for your next adventure at REI or your local outdoor retail shop. Here's the truth. Mental health can be more difficult to manage on the road, especially if you currently find yourself needing to isolate yourself to one place. Fortunately, no matter where you are right now, BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you. Thanks to their online interface, you can connect with your professional counselor by scheduling secure video and phone sessions in a safe and private online environment, meaning that you can get help on your own time and at your own pace. You can even chat and text with them too. I tried BetterHelp this winter to work through the stress and anxiety associated with moving to a new state, owning a business, and other major life changes. And because I'm on the road a lot, going to a counselor in person just wasn't an option for me. This is all a great fit for BetterHelp. Whether you're currently at home sitting on your couch, not able to go outside, or on the road again someday. After signing up, I was connected with a licensed professional counselor and was communicating with them in less than 24 hours to chat about my struggles and goals for therapy in a confidential online setting. BetterHelp has over 3,000 U.S. licensed therapists across all 50 states who specialize in topics like depression, stress, anxiety, relationships, sleeping, trauma, anger, family conflicts, grief, and self-esteem. And you can customize your needs to get the best therapist fit for you. Getting started with counseling can feel scary, but it's really something that can help. And with BetterHelp, which takes affordability into consideration, you can get started today, even if you don't have an insurance plan that covers mental health services. Women on the Road listeners get 10% off your first month with discount code ROAD. To get started, go to betterhelp.com road. Simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor you'll love so you can start feeling better inside out. Visit betterhelp.com road and use promo code road for 10% off.
assuming you're like in a vehicle with just yourself or just you and your partner or your, like, people you're going to be around anyway, it's absolutely safer to drive. We're back with Emily and Kate. One of the other big questions we've heard and contemplated ourselves is whether there's a safer way to travel if you want to avoid exposure or transmission of COVID-19. At this exact moment in time, I want to be clear that non-essential travel is not encouraged, which Kate will cover in this episode and that we also spoke about at the top of everything. But it's likely we won't always feel this way about travel. And as the months roll on, it's very possible that our calendars will once again fill up with events in other states, weekend getaways with friends, and bucket list adventures we've been planning since this all began. So when we do get back to our non-essential travel, you know, the kind for fun that we really love doing, maybe you're sitting at home dreaming about it right now, is there a safer way to get out there? And in short, is driving safer than flying? Here's Emily's take. Like, from what I've been seeing... In airports, like just in the news, in airports right now, with like everyone's trying to get back where their home is, and TSA is screening so thoroughly for COVID right now that there's like hour backups in airports, and people are all just in these base spaces crowded together, which is the opposite of what you want to do right now. So at least when you're in your car, you're like self-contained. On top of which, like if you fly somewhere. I mean, I hope no one's flying somewhere for vacation right now. I hope everyone's just flying home. But if you are flying somewhere, you don't know if you're going to be able to get back at this point. So at least if you're in your car, if if you're driving, you're kind of under your own steam and you can get back where you're going, hopefully. So I think it's definitely safer to drive. Kate had some expanded thoughts on travel in general and what the risks we're weighing are when we do decide it's time to start traveling again. It's more the questions of ourselves that we have to ask. And this is also information that CDC has put on their website. But when you're considering travel, there is a heightened risk of exposure going through airports at this time, especially with international travel. You know, they've shut down almost completely the cruise industry. So our country is asking us, don't travel, don't move. And for travelers and adventurers, like the people who listen to this podcast, that is a really hard message for us to hear that we're being asked to stand still and to kind of stay at home and and not totally go out and do the things that we normally would. I think it's important, especially too, if you're going to be on the road, the things and the comforts that you might be going on the road for are not guaranteed, like you said. So if you're going for a concert, many concerts are being canceled, festivals and parades, these things are shutting down because the U.S. is realizing that we need to really slow the spread of this disease, and these are methods that work. For instance, if you're driving through Ohio that's closing down its bars and restaurants, you might not have a place to eat. So it will become really tricky if you're out on the road and you find yourself in a situation where those things that you thought would be there aren't. Um, And, you know, especially a lot of us like to go to the national parks, and you need to be aware and take a look at their websites and make sure that they remain open. Uh, There's no guarantee that those places that you were going to do remain open. So when you're traveling, you know, CDC says the same thing. And it's important to look at a couple of things before you go. Like, are you going to a city or to an area where COVID-19 coronavirus is spreading at that destination? And if so, you might be at higher risk of exposing it. And thinking about your travel partners, will they be in a place where they're exposing themselves or, you know, even using public transportation like buses, metros, and trains? But is your travel companion at higher risk of severe illness if they get COVID-19? But it also highly affects people with diabetes and lung disease. So it's not just people 
with respiratory issues. Okay, so no big non-essential travel in the immediate future. Try to stay home. Only go out if you really need to. Got it. But like Kate mentioned, this is a tall order for folks who love to visit new places. And for a lot of us, access to the road and the outdoors is what fuels us and reduces stress. So asking us not to leave our homes at all feels really stifling. What about camping? Are the outdoors safe to spend time in? We didn't spend too much time sitting in this topic, and there are a lot of other valuable ideas being shared online about how to access the outdoors responsibly at this point. But Emily covered some of the basics when it comes to taking a small local camping trip. I think there's a difference between going camping if you're self-sufficient and you're kind of wild camping out in the middle of nowhere, as opposed to like going to an RV park or a public campground where there's a lot of people and you're like sharing a bathroom and stuff like that. I would like, don't do that right now. It's not a good idea. So it kind of depends on how, how you're doing it. And then I will say, I think I read someone, I'm not sure, I think it probably was from Italy. I was reading a post just before we started to talk and they were saying that they're genuinely not even allowed to like go hiking because the healthcare system is so stressed right now that they're worried someone's gonna, you know, fall and break a leg or like need uh, evacuation services to come and get them. And they don't have that kind of manpower right now. So they're just trying to encourage everybody to like use the health system as little as possible. So this is not the time to go like do some sort of extreme sport where you're going to get hurt or you like may need someone to come and save you or, you know, like this is the time to go for a hike. That's fine. (laughs) Go camping. If you know what you're doing, that's fine. This is not, not the time to be doing something that would, you know, put any more stress on the health system than we already have. Something else to consider if you do go camping is where you're heading and the communities you may be interacting with there. We've been really distressed to see many people wanting to escape to the desert or to the mountains in order to get away from COVID-19 and the stresses associated with the pandemic. And as someone who lives in Moab, Utah, a small town in the heart of the Southwest, nestled right next to Arches National Park, I can empathize with folks wanting to believe there's a better reality somewhere outside our own home, maybe even a short driving distance away. But there are real-life consequences to heading to small outdoor town destinations like Moab, Jackson Hole, Mammoth Lakes, and many others right now. Emily sums it up perfectly using Moab as a case study. You can transmit this before you show symptoms, and 80% of cases are mild, so it would be super easy to bring something into an isolated community that you don't even know you're passing around. And these places, like I'm sure in Moab, you don't have a big hospital with a ton of respirators, so if like this comes into your area and all your elderly get sick, you don't have the healthcare system to support that. So I think people need to stop thinking so much about like, oh, I'm young and healthy and I would fight this off and it'd be fine and start more thinking about what the effect they are having on the communities that they're in. And aside from even, you know, the healthcare portion of this, they're taking up resources from a place that may really need them at some point. You know, they're taking food from your grocery stores and, you know, taking supplies that you guys may need and it's not easy to get them. If you're in a small town that has one store, so you really need to think about the stress that you're putting on these more isolated areas and their resources. One other thing we've been asked about is how to help others in the road travel community, especially those who are in more vulnerable populations, like those over 60 or who have compromised immune systems, many of who live on the road full time. So how do you provide support without putting those folks at risk? Protecting yourself from getting this and spreading it further is the best thing you can do right now because that's going to protect it from spreading to our high-risk populations. So this is not a time to go to be visiting with your older friends because you don't know what you're bringing to them at this point. So I would highly recommend checking in on your elders living, you know, in vans and RVs. 
by phone, making sure they're not getting lonely, you know, making sure they're doing okay, they have what they need. If they need food and supplies and maybe their prescription medications or you can help and go get those things for them and like drop them off, but no, don't kind of stay and socialize. But yeah, definitely bring whatever they need to them so they don't have to go, you know, to a busy grocery store or wait in a busy pharmacy or something like that. And then help make sure they have a plan for if they do get sick, who can they call to get them to the hospital? Where's the nearest hospital? Where can they go to get tested? All that kind of stuff. I think we can all agree that it is an immense privilege to be young and in good health when it comes to facing COVID-19. Statistically speaking, the younger you are, the more likely you are to have mild symptoms, if any. Folks in their 20s are often considered asymptomatic carriers, which means that they don't have any outward symptoms at all, but can transmit them to others. This can easily put travelers in a position of believing that nothing is wrong, all the while leaving a path of illness behind them as they move through the country. Kate has some expanded thoughts to share on that. You go from the spectrums of fear to I'm invincible. And unfortunately, when we have our own personal lives at stake and we want to do things, we want to be invincible. We think, oh, I can, you know, I'm fine. I will get past this. And at the end of the day, yeah, you might get past this, but you might contract it and infect someone else who don't have the abilities to get healthcare, who might be older and are more at risk, who have those underlying medical conditions that have shown that they skyrocket towards their being hospitalized and being in the ICU and even dying. So it's really important that we do our part and we are responsible for ourselves in the way that we maintain our hygiene to help protect the people around us. And especially on the road, for the most part, you're interacting with strangers and we want to give respect to the people who are around us and in those spaces and being as mindful as we can as travelers. The biggest way we can all contribute to mitigating COVID-19, washing your hands, practicing social distancing, and limiting non-essential travel, they all fall under a term we've been hearing a lot lately called flattening the curve. Emily explains what this is and why it is so critical for us to work on flattening the curve immediately, because the reality is that things in the states are already starting to follow some concerning patterns. So it's an epidemic curve, so it's a graph that shows how many people are infected over a period of time. So it kind of looks like a mountain, and if you don't do any aggressive mitigation efforts, if you're not doing social distancing, no one's washing their hands, et cetera, et cetera, you're going to have a really steep mountain, like a really steep epidemic curve where a lot of people get sick really fast, and that's what we're seeing in Italy right now. The numbers that I've seen, the U.S. is right on track with Italy. We're just several days behind them, so if we don't get serious right now, it's going to get pretty bad. So the idea is to flatten that epidemic curve out and space out the infections over a longer period of time so that it doesn't overburden the healthcare system. So there's like a line on the graph that's like the amount of patients that our healthcare system could take care of at one time. And if the epidemic curve crosses that line, if we get too many patients all at once, We just physically don't have the nurses, the doctors, the equipment to care for everyone. So what's happening in Italy right now, and this is scary to say, but I'm sure everyone knows by now, what's happening in Italy right now is they're basically practicing war medicine, and they're trying to treat the people that they think have the best chance of surviving, and the elderly that don't, they're having to to just let them die. So this is exactly what we're trying to avoid here. And I will say it's bizarre to watch because I worked in West Africa during the Ebola outbreak like five years ago now 
And I have seen this happen in the set setting of a developing country where a health system is so overwhelmed that people couldn't get quality treatment for Ebola, but also couldn't get quality treatment for anything because the healthcare system was so overwhelmed that like the nurses and doctors were dying, all the equipment was gone, hospitals were overrun, people were dying in childbirth, people were dying of heart attacks, people were dying of things that they should not have died of because there just wasn't the equipment and the staff to care for them. This is what's starting to happen in Italy right now, and we're on that path. And I know this sounds really scary, and I don't want to be alarmist, but if this works, if we all get really aggressive about this right now, it's going to look like we overreacted, and we're going to be like, oh, there weren't that many cases, and not that many people died, and then like, then that means it worked. So we're going to have to be willing to look like we overreacted. Just go all out right now so that we can you know, prevent getting to where Italy is. So yeah, so that's the epidemic curve. What we're trying to do is flatten that curve so we get we may get the same amount of cases in the long run, who knows, but at least it will be spread out so we have a higher likelihood that we can save those people and not run out of hospital beds and respirators and decide who you know has a chance to live and treat only them. Um, so that's, that's the point of all this aggressive um, social distancing and mitigation efforts. It sounds easy to maintain social distance or limit your travel, but what if you live on the road full-time, where your personal space is small and a mobile lifestyle is a given? Kate has some thoughts on how your actions do make a difference and contribute to a larger picture. Really, what they're asking us is, is this essential travel? Is it absolutely necessary? And for women on the road, you know, people who live in their camper vans, like, yeah, this is my home. And so you can practice fairly similar precautions to the same place if you had a physical house or apartment in a city, you know, maintaining distance from people, washing your hands, not going into crowded areas. But when you're traveling, it's not only about are you getting infected or infected with this virus, but what is your capacity to spread that virus, especially to people who are older, that might be your family, or, you know, immunocompromised, or have other underlying medical conditions. So those are the questions. Instead of saying, should I go to this city versus this rural area, it's really saying, what is my risk to contracting this? And what is my risk to others if I were to spread this? And at the end of the day, yeah, we're, we're being asked to essentially stand still in some ways. We're being asked to not move. And that's hard, but there are beauties in that. And it's a good time for reflection in seeing the things in our lives that do take vacation or the ability to read a book, there are so many things that we can be doing and we can still connect with others that are good things that maybe it's a good time to try it out now that we want to maintain the social distancing. And I know this has all been a lot, but for those of you sitting there feeling hopeless right now, try not to let this overwhelm you. Remember, we're all in this together. The more serious we get about this now, the faster we can get this under control, and then we all can go back to regular life. But if you want to battle this for months and months and months and months and have our lives upended for, you know, in perpetuity, we can do that, but it would be better if we just all got under control now. And then you can go back to Moab and have all your fun. <laughs> so in the meantime, sharing information online, does it really help spread the message and inform your network? In short, I'd say yes, but make sure it comes from reliable sources. Kate has some tips on how to share info that's verified and is more likely to be received by those who need to hear it. Make sure if you're sharing a resource that it comes from a verified source. It's so easy to just 
copy and paste without looking at an article or looking at an infographic. And that's a huge cause for not only misinformation, but also in a sense like decision fatigue. We, we are trying to decide, you know, should we get on the road? Should we stay home? And when we're constantly bombarded, it's exhausting. So it's important that this information is verified and you want to share something that will help your neighbors but not overwhelming them. So really great sources for information. The first stop is the Centers for Disease Control, CDC's website. They have constant new links to travel, frequently asked questions, mental health during emergencies and during pandemics like this. And also take a look at your local and state health departments. We are pushing out a huge number of information, especially that is pertinent to the state. So there might be updates about anything from school closings to just tonight my state closed bars and restaurants to people who wanted to come through to congregate. So be aware of what your states are pushing out, and that can really help you in making decisions based on your travel or just based on your day-to-day. And if you're interested in how this pandemic is playing uh, internationally, the WHO, World Health Organization, has really great situation reports that give you an update of the number of people who are getting the virus every day, and it's giving you a little situation of what's going on internationally. Last but not least, let's talk about you. It's more important than ever for all of us to practice self-care. You too. So we asked Emily and Kate to share their advice on what we can do to support ourselves and one another during times like this. Here are their thoughts. Assuming that you are taking this seriously and you're already practicing social distancing and staying at home, then it's fine to take some time away from this. Like, I know I'm so close to it that sometimes I just feel like it's too much and I need to watch some crappy reality television or just get away from all the COVID news for a while because I'm already doing everything I can do and the panic isn't really giving you any extra layer of protection to just be like freaking out and like sucking in COVID-19 news all the time. So help each other kind of just get away from it as long as you're already practicing, you know, all the protective measures that you can while we're fighting this. Take care of your physical health and help lower that stress. So everything from making sure that you're hydrated, that you're sleeping well, you're exercising, you're eating good nourishing food. One of the things that can really cause stress that isn't there otherwise is when we're completely exposed to all this information overload. So really try to limit your media exposure. And there's a difference in being, again, up to date with everything and just going over the cliff where you're starting to see yourself have those physical signs of stress. And instead in this time, really focus yourself to the positive parts of your life. You can really reconnect with people, with your loved ones, with your family, your friends. There are so many resources out there and I think it's such a good part of social media that we're hearing of, you know, there's so much that we can do during this time. We can go on a walk. (laughs) Walks aren't prohibited. (laughs) Go on a drive if you need it. Clean out your van or clean out your closet. Have a game night virtually with friends. Check in with people. Write snail mail. The list goes on. So if people aren't in their typical mood or they're not doing their normal hobbies and you've seen signs in them of, you know, a lack of sleep, or they're getting irritated easily or hopeless or helpless, 
take a look at those signs and, and be there for them, connect with them, talk with them. If you are experiencing those symptoms, reach out to people. And during this time, one of the great resources is there is this national disaster distress hotline that's activated in times like this. And you can call them and share what you're going through. Uh, stress is normal in times of disaster or times of emergency. So we're going to go through it, but how we cope with it, how we connect and we help each other is going to be really important during this time. Thank you so much to Emily Scott and Kate Piper for taking time out of their incredibly busy schedules to have conversations with me. It's clear you both are passionate, committed, and incredibly knowledgeable in your fields of expertise, and we are so grateful for you. We encourage you to follow Emily and Kate online. Emily Scott, you can find on Instagram at Two Dusty Travelers, and Kate Pfeiffer, you can find on Instagram at Kate Pfeiffer. Also, and this one's important, we're especially hoping you'll check out the good handful of links and resources we're dropping in our show notes for you to peruse and continue your learning from. Really, it's an important one, and those might even be things you want to share with friends or family. Take a look at them, please. We'll see you next week. So in the meantime, consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or anywhere you listen. It's a fast, free way to support the show, and it truly does make a difference in helping other people find us. And it's something you can do from the comfort of your own home right now that would really help us out, whether your home is a camper or somewhere more stationary. Also, if you're wanting to interact with more of this amazing community, make sure you find us on social media. There's a lot of great folks on there, and at a time like this, it might be nice to feel a little bit more connected. We're on Instagram at Women on the Road and on Facebook, including our Facebook group for community questions, stories, and support, which you can find by searching for Women on the Road Podcast. Thanks again to our sponsors, Deuter and BetterHelp. Music is by Josh Woodward. Women on the Road is a production of Ravel Creative. We'll see you next time.